few years back, a guy uh, appeared on the literary scene. Some of you may remember the book he wrote, um, um, Women Are From Venus and Men Are From Mars. And just by the title of that book, uh, what do you think he was writing about? Any idea? Hmm. What's that? Different viewpoints and perspectives. That's a good summary, I think. In his book, he, he tries to explore the, the true differences between men and women, at least from his perspective. You know, you've got men and women and going in two different directions. Supposedly, if you read that book, uh, you'd finally understand the differences that uh, are between the two sexes, mentally and emotionally, at least according to this author. But I doubt that the author could even attempt to write that book today, for today we don't even know what a woman is, and uh, our secular world would have you believe that uh, you can have your choice of many genders besides just two. All this is to say that uh, when you think you have the opposite sex all figured out, you really don't. Um, thank goodness, however, God made some of us where opposites attract. Um, my wife and I, I think, are a good example of that. I'm tall and she's not. In fact, she's complaining that she's shrunk two inches over the last couple of years. She's smart and I'm not. She's lovely and I'm less so. But nevertheless, God has brought us together and we are starting our 50th year together. This concept of opposites is very common um, when it comes to man's relationship with God. Sinful and rebellious man often thinks he knows what's best for himself and often heads in the opposite direction of what God has instructed him to do. I don't know, maybe you have opinions. I, I don't know what part of God's revelation is hardest for humans to accept. But I suspect that every point has its difficulties. Natural man would be in opposition to a holy God. For instance, the Greeks had a real difficult time uh, with the incarnation of God in human form. Most of them believe that anything material was bad and anything spiritual was good. And so when they were told that Jesus Christ was God incarnate, God in human form, they had a hard time with that. A number of people have a problem with the resurrection. They have difficulties in accepting that what once was dead is now alive again. 
Probably for most people, the greatest difficulty in the Bible insistence that you must be saved by grace and not by works. Because a lot of people believe that, you know, I can do better, or if I did this extra deed, I will score points with God. And because of sin and holiness are polar opposites, we find it difficult to deal with these truths. In the fourth and fifth chapters of Amos, we come upon another of these areas in which the mind of God and the mind of man go in two opposite directions. And this is the subject of religion. So if you're not there already, turn to Amos chapter 4. We're going to try to cover Amos 4 through 5.15. I'm not going to hit every verse. I'm going to kind of summarize some things along the way. So um, hopefully we'll get to 5.15 by the time we're done. In many people's minds, religion is a good thing. Depending on their upbringing, they would prefer one of the world's religions, even uh, one of the many forms of Christianity. But to their way of thinking, even the less desirable forms of religion are better than no religion at all. The big problem is these people suppose that God thinks the same way they do. That God is basically pleased with all religious practices. For example, Oprah Winfrey has said, Don't tell me Christianity is the only way to heaven. There are many religious paths that lead to heaven. This is, however, not how God thinks. We see the polar opposites here. On the contrary, not only is God not pleased with our religious practices, he actually is very much displeased with them. Even more than that, he hates and he despises man's attempt at forming religions. Amos 5.5 says, Do not seek Bethel, do not go to Gilgal, do not journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. These were the religious sites set up by the king to institute a state religion and a state priesthood of his own making, not God's. And in response to that, God is saying basically, don't go there. Don't go and practice your man-centered practices because they're going to be wiped out. I'm going to take care of them. They're no longer going to exist. 
Now this does not mean that there aren't practices that God is pleased with. In other places in Scripture, God instructs us how we should worship Him. Scripture informs us as to what is pleasing to Him in His sight. And that's what we should be practicing. But just to have religion for religious sake is abhorrent to God. The only thing that is pleasing is a genuine thankful and obedient response to God as a result of a life that has been changed by him. God's hatred even includes religions that go by the name of Judaism and Christianity. For that's the point of Amos' prophetic charges in these chapters. Amos is talking about Israel the very nation that professed to worship Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament. In King Jeroboam's day, the state religion of Israel was focused in cult shrines that were built, one at Bethel in the south and all the way up to the north to the tribe of Dan. In Amos 4 and 5, Amos concentrates on three of them. The first is Bethel, where he began his preaching and prophesying. The second is Gilgal, and the third is Beersheba. Now, each site had its own history and probably its own distinct form of religion the way they interpreted what they wanted to accomplish. But it was all supposedly done in the name of Jehovah. But it wasn't what Jehovah asked. It wasn't what Jehovah had instructed them to do. But Amos speaks out against each of them with a degree of sarcasm. Basically, what he sums up in these chapters is that the people can go to these shrines, they can call on Jehovah, but all they will do is increase their sin, pile up wrath against the day of God's judgment. So let's take a look at chapter 4 and follow along as I read. Hear this word, you cows of Basham, on Mount Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has shown by his holiness that time will surely come when you'll be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You shall go straight out through the breaches in the wall, and you will be cast out towards Haram declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do. 
declares the sovereign Lord. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on the one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none, and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you had not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you, as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword, along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps, yet you have not returned to me, declared the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel, and I be, and because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He who forms the mountains, who creates the wind, and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord God Almighty is his name. This chapter lists some of the sins um, displayed by the dead uh, religion and dead faith of the people of Israel. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, speaks of Israel's wealthy women as fat cows. And this must be something they would acknowledge because David talks about, I think, Psalm 22, about the cattle of, of Basham. Um, this must be a good grazing place for him. So Amos sarcastically um, labels these women as fat cows. They were pampered, sleek, and well-fed. And these women <coughs> selfishly pushed their husbands to oppose the helpless, oppress the helpless and poor in order to support their lavish uh, lifestyles. Remember that there was, very, there was a very small, rich elite of ruling class people, and then there was a large group of, of um, poverty-stricken, underprivileged people. There was no middle class in this economy. It was just the two, two classes of people. Verse 4, Amos invites the people to, again, uh, sarcastically sin in Bethel and Gilgal, where they worship idols. If you remember your history, Bethel is where God had renewed his covenant of, of Abraham with Jacob. And in the days of Amos, Bethel was the religious center of the northern kingdom, where Jeroboam had set up the idols for the people to worship. Gilgal was Israel's first campground after entering the Promised Land. Here, Joshua had renewed the covenant 
and the rite of circumcision. And the people celebrated the Passover at Gilgal. It was also the place where Saul uh, was first crowned king of Israel. So it has a history. And these were the places that the king had set up the cult shrines. Verses 6 through 13, we see these verses. No matter how God warned the people through famine, drought, blight, and locusts, plagues, or war, they still ignored him. They still rejected him. And yet they would go to these places and worship and claim to be worshiping the true God of Jehovah. Because the Israelites didn't get the message, they would have to meet God face to face in judgment. No longer would they uh, ignore God. They would have to face Him, the very one that they rejected. Think about our own situation here. Early in American history, we had at least two experiences known as the Great Awakenings. Great Awakening 1 and 2. And as well as there were some small, minor spiritual revivals that took place. And this is where the people heeded God's warnings. And this is where the people returned to God uh, in great numbers. And this is where people repented of their sins and sought God's blessings and direction. However, um, it's not been the case in our recent history. The 20th century was the bloodiest and deadliest of the history of all mankind. More Christians have been martyred in the the past 100 years than of all of church history. We have seen the destructive nature of hurricanes and earthquakes and wildfires and dust bowls and famine. We've gone through great depressions and great recessions and numerous economic uh, calamities. Some of us have survived polio and smallpox and AIDS and Ebola and flu and COVID and many other diseases. And as we saw last week, God brings about these disasters. These are his warnings. Return to me. Repent. Like in the days of Amos, he uses them to warn the people of coming judgment, of coming calamity, to repent their sins and return to the God Almighty. So you would say that he's speaking to us today as well, like he did in the days of Israel. If we fail to heed his warnings, then we will experience our own version of verse 12 in chapter 4. Therefore, I will bring upon you all the disasters I have announced. Prepare to meet your God in judgment. Any thoughts or questions or Ideas at this point? Comments? Yeah. Yeah. 
calves. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Golden calves. Yeah. Interesting. Well, because of some time constraints and the length of chapter 5, I'm just going to highlight certain sections of that. <clears throat> chapter 5 starts surprisingly to the listeners of Amos and his preaching. He starts off with a funeral dirge, um, a funeral song that was um, recited at. Uh, at these times when people passed. And so he begins a dirge, a dirge of, of the nation of Israel. He's going to, first five verses, sing this dirge as if Israel is already dead. And in fact, spiritually they are. But he's also saying, your judgment's coming, and it's going to get worse than what your state of spiritual death is. The Israelites believe that their wealth and religion rituals may be made them secure. But Amos grieved over their true or sure destruction that was yet to come. So again, uh, 1 through 5 of chapter 5 is a funeral dirge of death, faith. This dirge speaks of death where there should have been life. In verse 2a, it says, Fallen, no more to rise. If you're going to these shrines and you're declaring you're worshiping Jehovah in truth, then there should be death, or there should be life, there shouldn't be death. Here was the failure of Bethel. This was called the house of God, the location of promise. God is in this place, the giver of hope and life. But not in this case. There was nothing but death, the death of a false religion. Secondly, the dirge speaks of abandonment, where there should have been com companionship. 2b says, the virgin Israel forsaken, with none to raise her up. Here we see the failure of Beersheba. The promise here was that God is with you. Israel has been carried off in death as a virgin who has never known the joys of married companionship and who has, even in her virgin state, could find none to befriend her and to help her in her hour of need. Thirdly, the dirge speaks of seizure where there should have been inheritance. Fallen, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. The failure of the Gilgad promise here. The people of, <coughs> the people of God uh, lying in defeat. Dead were they uh, with this false religion. It was the complete opposite of the Gilgal of Je Joshua, where they shouted in triumph over their defeated foes.
chapter 4 and 5 did not merely say that God hates empty religion. They also tell why he hates empty religion. These chapters are kind of like an autopsy. It kind of tears apart this empty religion, explains why God hates it. The first detestable sin God hates. Israel's religion coexisted with widespread moral corruption. Religion coexisted with widespread moral corruption. Like in chapter 1, Amos doesn't list every detail, but rather he paints a word picture, in this case focusing on the women of the high rank of the upper crust of of Samaria. I've already said that Amos regards them as lazy, brutal, indifferent to the poor and needy and oppressed, uh, those below them. Their main purpose in the life is the fulfillment of their own physical pleasures. That's moral corruption in a religion that God detests or hates. They were living in a much materialistic world. In earlier in the chapter, I talked about them adorning their houses with ivory. Well, to acquire ivory and use it as a household product was very expensive at that time. Very materialistic world, much like the world we live in today. I don't remember. I'm in the baby boomer generation. I don't know what Quentin generation is. But uh, the latest survey on the youngest generation, I think it was from 15 to 35, the latest survey of this materialistic generation said that their chief goal or purpose in life is happiness and having fun. rather than to glorify God and join him forever, which is what God requires of us to do. Amos has already painted a picture of corruption in chapter 1 and 2, but here he reemphasizes that corruption uh, to show that it can exist alongside a highly developed sense of religion. Earlier, Amos was able to show that the corruption was the same and equal to the corruption of the pagan countries that surrounded Israel. Chapter 3, he suggested that many of the wealthy people obtained their standard of living through corruption. Again, this is very evident in today's society where many familiar names and families appear to have obtained their wealth through corruption. It's interesting if you take a look at some of the people that we send to Washington, their annual salary is $143,000 and they come out millionaires. I don't know how you do that, but they manage to do it somehow. A former president, his family made their money by 
selling bootleg liquor during Prohibition. So again, we see this corruption very evident in our society today as well. He goes on to show that this corruption is next to this highly developed uh, religious practices of their day. In verse 10, or verse 7 of, of chapter 5, and 10 through 13, we see listed injustice in the courts, hatred of truth, disregard of the poor, oppression, and other devices. And then it sums up it after listing these things. It says, therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. We see the hatred of truth and oppression rearing its ugly head alongside today's modern religion as well. Again, the House of Representatives have proposed legislation that would turn preaching against homosexuality into a hate crime. Canada, Australia, and Sweden already have such laws on their books. So why do we think it can't happen here? We see our culture declaring that what has been described as evil for over 2,000 years is now being good. And what is good is now evil. And like I just read the verse, prudent men keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Today, if you speak out against these questions or question the secular society, then you're smeared or you're canceled or worse. And today, like in the days of Amos, our legal system seems to have two levels of justice. One for those who can afford giant law firms, and then there's the rest of us who can't. Or the legal system may take someone to court in order to drain their savings that leads to the loss of their home and property, that they are striving to get a defense which they will eventually lose. Amos notes that the injustice exists quite peacefully with his popular religion. And some people would uh, be surprised, uh, I think, hearing that corruption and religion go hand in hand at times. But similar corruption has existed alongside religion in all ages. It was particularly true at the time of Christ. The Jewish religion was both highly developed and thoroughly followed by the scribes and Pharisees of Christ's day. So far as these religious leaders were concerned, there, were, there was a law to be kept, and they kept it. Yet when they wanted to do away with Christ, they were capable of carrying out their murderous corruption and religious duties at the same time. You see, the difficulty they faced was that Christ was arrested during the 
time of the Passover, the most holy week of their religious calendar. And they needed to get rid of him without defiling themselves. So they concluded that it would be done this way. There would be a trial by night, which was illegal, injustice. But it was not so wrong in their judgment if the end justifies the means. What was worse was failing to keep the Passover. So it had to be done at night, illegally. Next, there would be an official trial by day in the early morning hours. And there would be an op- approach to Pilate, though they were <laughs> needed to make sure that they, none of them went in to be with Pilate because that would defile them and that would not up- permit them to celebrate the Passover. There would be the execution. The whole thing would be over by noontime, and everyone involved could then go home and worship Jehovah. The scribes and Pharisees saw themselves as quite proper and religious. And when it was necessary, they stepped outside the rules of their religion just enough to kill Jesus. And then they stepped back in and went on their religious ways and performed their religious duties. So there are many other examples that could be found in the atrocities of the nominal Christians uh, at the time of the Crusades, the greed and uh, perversions of the organized church in the Dark Ages, the abandonment of truth in today's modern churches. Before we get to the second thing that God hates about this kind of modern religion, I want you to go back through chapter 4 of Amos and just do a quick scan down through there and tell me what offerings did the people bring to the altar. I read through it, but see if you can find there was a couple of offerings. Anybody find one? L? Okay, and <laughs> what, what, what offering was that? It had a name to it. Um, Thanksgiving offering, okay. And what other offering did they bring? Pardon me? Yeah, thank offering, Thanksgiving, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think some uh, scriptures interpret a free will offering. Okay. And they boasted about that free will offering. Um, what offering is missing? What are they not taking to this altar, this shrine? Sin offering. There's no mention of them bringing sin offering before Jehovah. Could it be that they had no sense that they were sinful? They were going through the motions. 
much like that as some of our modern churches today where they don't want to preach sin. They don't want to put a burden on their congregation. They don't want to have people responsible for their sin and seek repentance for it. We see a very similar parallel between what's happening here and what's going on today. So the second thing that God hates about this popular religion is that there's no sense of sin on part of their worshipers. The third thing that was an offense to God, on the surface this seems ridiculous, but for what is, for what is uh, they, were, they were not seeking God in these religious practices. And that kind of seems ridiculous. What do you mean they're not seeking God? Isn't that what religion is supposed to do? They're supposed to seek God? Not in God's opinion. Again, we are seeing two opposing views here. The holy God's view of religion and man's God of view of religion. Oftentimes, the opposite is true. Rather than to seek God, religious are really attempts to get away from God. That is why there are so many of them. Rather than to seek God as he has revealed himself in Scripture, man creates religion where he can make God in his own image. This way man can hang on to his own sin and continue to control of his own life and still become religious. Pastor Jonathan Kahn Uh, in researching his new book, uh, sees this pagan-type worship, this pagan-type religion being reinstituted in America today. He calls it the paganization of America. Like the ancient civilization, he sees people devising religious systems that will allow them to do whatever they desire with no moral consequences. I just an example would be <clears throat> the Islamic religion. There's no desire to have a personal relationship with God in that religion. There's no desire to humble oneself and commune and walk with God. There's no desire to be adopted into the family of God by turning from their sin. It's a religion of works. The one goal in mind is to get to paradise, a better place than earth. And they do this by performing five practices, praying five times a day, giving alms to the poor, traveling to Mecca and kissing an altar of a pagan god. It's more important to them to be a community of believers here on earth where all believers are equal rather than to have a personal relationship with a living God. So what are they seeking if they're not seeking after God? A person may be seeking to uh, praise from other people. This is why Amos says that the people of this day bragged about their free will offerings. They boasted about them in verse 5. They were into religion for the glory it would bring to them personally. 
Sometimes people seek religion for the cloak that it provides them. Some people are seeking feelings of importance by associating uh, with something that seems important to other people. And uh, they want to seem important as well. So they wrap themselves in this cloak of religion. How often do we see Catholic or Protestant politicians attend church and then vote for abortion, which is in opposition to the position of the church? They wrap themselves in a cloak of religion when it suits their purposes. The world might say, well, what difference does all this make if the worshipers are seeking and they're finding answers to some of their daily needs? God answers that it makes all the difference in the world and all the difference in eternity. We see that the warning God had given Israel to turn from their false religious path we saw that famine, drought, and crop blight, and disease, and war. These were given so the people would return to God, yet they did not do that. These verses continue on the theme that Amos began in, in chapter 3, verse 6. Quote, when disaster comes to a city, it has, to not, has it not been caused by the Lord? Disasters are given by God, by the people. They awake from their laziness and turn their sins and yet have time to seek after God. In closing, in early chapter 5, Amos tells the people not to seek Bethel or Gilgal or Beersheba, for these will be reduced to nothing when judgment comes. They should seek God and live. Verse 6 says, seek the Lord and live. Verse 4 says, seek me and live. And in the end of chapter 5, we finally get to verse 15. 14 and 15. Seek good, do not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. There is no seeking after God that is not the same, at the same time seeking after good and shunning evil. There is no seeking God that is not at the same time seeking justice. Anything else is just hypocrisy. But where God is sought, there is life. He is the source of life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So even though we have sinned in the past, there is abundant mercy with our mighty Lord and God. Any thoughts, comments? Questions? See the parallels between the days of Amos and parallels here? Okay.
All right, uh, Wade, would you close us in prayer then? Amen.